Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Film, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Annie Burke, the host. Today, we'll be talking to Christina Lane, professor of film studies at the University of Miami and author of Phantom Lady, Hollywood producer Joan Harrison, the forgotten woman behind Hitchcock. Hers is the first book to ever be written about the life and work of Joan Harrison. Christina, thank you for joining us at the NMBN. Thank you for having me. Uh, Can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, Sure. Uh, So I I was born in Virginia and I grew up in in Maryland and in the Washington, D.C. area. And I first became interested in film really coming out of college. And I was interested actually in going into film production. I really thought I wanted to be a filmmaker. And soon um, as I was making these decisions, I guess I figured out that I was much more interested in in the scholarly side of things and luckily found myself in a graduate program with, um, with people like Judith Main and Laura Mulvey and studying, you know, feminist film theory and, and classic movies. And that's kind of how I fell into what I'm doing now. Excellent. Um, Well, it seems like that was a really good sort of preparation for the book that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, The title of your book refers to Joan Harrison as a forgotten woman, and Phantom Lady is both a biography, but I would also call it a feminist historiography, a kind of history of the history, how we get the histories that we inherit and and what shapes them. So I'm curious about the, the origin story of this project and why you think it took so long for someone to write the story of Joan Harrison. Yeah, and it and it took me twenty years, you know, to figure out um, what I wanted this project to be. But I think that's a really good point. Is is that you know this isn't just a straightforward biography. It does it does start with Joan Harrison's birth. It's a cradle to grave, you know, story in a sense that it goes kind of through her entire life. But I did want to try to be somewhat critical or reflective about what it means to write history what it means to tell a woman's story at the same time. And, and what was happening actually over the last years, you know, years and years and years, as I was thinking about the fact that I wanted to, to focus on Hitchcock and women is, you know, every so often someone would mention Joan Harrison on like a DVD commentary or in a Hitchcock biography and they would drop her name and, and essentially say, you know, well, somebody should really write a book about Joan Harrison, right? She's a really important figure. Somebody should talk about her. And um, meanwhile, I guess in the background, I, I was interested in the subject of female collaborators, right? And just the number of women who were so important to Hitchcock's work. And so I was thinking that I wanted to write a book more about the kind of the topic of collaboration and cover the, there were probably a dozen women that I could name that were central to his career and why, why they are so um, written out of history 
But at a certain point, it just came to, to such a head. Like I just began to say, you know, somebody really should write a book about Joan Harrison, <laughs> you know, and it just, you know, it just became kind of an urgent, um, an urgent, I felt an urgency about her in particular, partly because she had a career, um, you know, that was a solo career and she was so important to the tradition of, of film noir and, and because just as a personality, she was such a fascinating figure. So all of that really pointed me in the direction of a, of a bi- biography. Yeah. And their collaboration from, uh, from your book, it gives you such a sense that they have this very equal sort of respectful relationship that's so different from the collaborations that we might know about Hitchcock with the actresses that he uh, notoriously tormented or at least, right. you know, bullied. Yeah, I'm going to go with tormented. Um, I'm going to round up there. Uh, so I think that Harrison does provide this really compelling counterpoint that's happening maybe behind the scenes. Um, but because it's behind the scenes, you needed to sort of look beyond the films and to do some some real archival digging. So what sources and archives, collections did you consult in assembling this history? And did you talk to any living subjects? Yeah, and th- this was really the the most difficult and challenging part of of um, Joan Harrison's story and and writing this you know this um, book is is that you know she didn't leave behind any papers right There's no collection where you can point to oh let's go to Joan Harrison's papers at this particular archive um, and she didn't have any um, you know she didn't have any offspring there wasn't there wasn't really a family legacy or people that were waiting for someone to come knocking on their door and say, um, thanks for coming. We, we have all of her, her letters and her, you know, her diaries here. And we've just been waiting for someone to, to, to announce that they're writing the biography. So one of the, one of the approaches that I was kind of forced to take was to look at, um, to find, you know, all of the various Hitchcock collections Right, all the places, for example, where Alfred Hitchcock's papers are held in Los Angeles and Austin, Texas, and um, in London, and kind of get at her um, her work through the lens of Alfred Hitchcock, and also various other basically male figures, you know, that sh- that were really important in terms of her her work or her career. Um, some of this would be. Um, William Dozier, right? So he's not a name, he's not a household name, but he was a really important producer at RKO. And then later he was a producer of television. And so he, uh, he's somebody where I could go to, into his papers and find out a lot about Joan Harrison herself. So it was a lot of kind of working at an angle to get into the documentation, the documentation of, of her um, day-to-day kind of professional activities. And I ended up going to about, I think maybe 12, 14 archives, various archival collections in order to piece together and pull together what her, just kind of what her participation, what her contribution was to various films and to various, um, filmmakers. And then the other part in terms of your question about, um, kind of doing interviews and finding, you know, finding sources, um, I mean, that was a really enjoyable part of the work was trying to track down people who had either worked with her, knew her, could provide, um, you know, you wanted psychological insight, right? I wanted to find people who could give me a sense of who she was as a person and what I'm, I'm writing a character in a sense, right? When you're writing a biographer, you're really trying to get um, kind of inside, even though you can never access someone you're trying to still trying to tell the story from inside a little bit of her, of her mind and her perspective. So finding people that knew her. And one of the best things that I could do was find like the children of the filmmakers that she worked with, you know, or the producers and the actors and actresses that she worked with. And that was really helpful because those people are trying to carry on the legacy of, um, of Hollywood, for example, you know, and they were great. So I did, I did over 20 interviews which is a lot, but it's also, you know, I mean, I think other, some other books do many, many more, you know, I just did as much as I could do. And at a certain point, you just have to stop and start, start writing. Absolutely. Uh, so 
speaking of starting writing, uh, your book starts with sort of from Harrison's youth, uh, which is, you know, a very good place to start for a biography, uh, and looks at her sort of her middle class upbringing and her initial employment with Alfred Hitchcock as a private secretary. I think um, the wanted sign, you you sort of present her like as looking at this wanted young woman for employment sign. It really does feel like the beginning of a Hitchcock movie, uh, certainly one of his early, you know, more modest British productions. So tell us a little bit more about her early life and, and how Harrison would sort of call back on it later as she was creating her sort of public face. Right, which is a really good point, you know, that she um, did have a, an important role in going back and, and telling a story about herself um, as she was creating a, a persona or a kind of fiction. Um, once she gets to Hollywood, she she really does begin to give interviews about this the way that she met Hitchcock and the way that she entered the industry. And so... Um, as I was doing research and as I was trying to tell her story, um, you know, basically what she, what she says, what she explains is that she had been kind of casting about and kind of relatively lost after going to the Sorbonne and going to Oxford. And, and she came from a newspaper family. So her, her dream, at least the way she tells it sometimes is that she had wanted to be a, a newspaper reporter. She wanted to be a reporter and her own father had said, well, you can't do that because, that's too masculine of a job. So we want you to marry the boy next door, you know, um, or at least go out and, and, and do something that is more appropriate, like become a secretary or a sales girl. So that's, um, that's what she was doing when she is, is presented with this ad um, in the newspaper for a secretary um, for a director. And so she, you know, lines up for this job um, to work for, for, it, it turns out for Alfred Hitchcock. And so, um, you know, the story, right, the story, and this is what I tell in the book, but I also try to create a little bit of, of distance around, around the story, is that she becomes his secretary, but within just a couple of weeks, it, 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 it becomes obvious that she's the worst secretary that he's ever had. And it's really cute, you know, that she cannot take dictation and she can't type. And he, he realizes that at least she actually has all these great strengths and that she's great as a story editor and that um, he can use her for all these wonderful, wonderful areas. And eventually she, she starts writing screenplays for him. So this is her career trajectory. But at the same time, um, as I was, you know, as I was trying to kind of piece together her story, uh, it is really important to, to kind of remember that the way that I get at that is basically all these interviews that she gives later to, you know, um, Hedda Hopper and various, you know, gossip columnists and newspapers. And so the story changes a lot, you know, so for example, she is lining up for the job interview and first there are 20 people in line. And then in another interview, she'll say that there's 40 people in line. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point she says there were 200 people in line, you know, and she's always, um, she's always kind of improving on, on, or exaggerating on her own, her own, um, her own, her own stories. And she's a storyteller. So this is what's fantastic about, about Joan Harrison is that she dramatizes even her own narrative. And, uh, you know, that, that was part of my own challenge was trying to create a little bit of, of critical kind of, of a reflexive tone so that, and, and as I also tried to do with a lot of the footnotes or the end notes, you know, they're not, they're not exactly um, footnotes, but it's just kind of showing the research and kind of showing the work at the end of the book so that I'm not exactly um, creating, um, you know, a text where I, where I'm suggesting that I know everything, you know, but I'm at least showing, showing the sources. Well, that seems like one of the sort of, great rewards and difficulties of writing a biography is that you would get really taken in by your subject. You sort of need to be, you need to be um, sort of enter into a, a monogamous relationship with Joan Harrison for a few years, but it, it felt like a lot that you would need to sort of read what she says in different ways. I'm such a bad secretary. I have to be a producer. I'm not a good writer. And then she proceeds to sort of 
spin a yarn for you about her origins that make you think maybe you are a little bit of a writer. Uh, But primarily her job was working with writers as a producer uh, and working with Hitchcock and producing. So she started with him, obviously what you're telling us, she started with him in the British film studio system. And then she made the transition with him and his wife who started as an editor to Hollywood. And so what was that sort of transition like for her and what were her biggest achievements on both sides of the, of the Atlantic? Yeah. Um, the ocean. Right. Pretty far, yeah, no, pretty yeah. far and across America. This is not new books geography, obviously. <laughs> no, no, but you're absolutely right. Um, and, and, uh, and it's a really good point, right? Is that she was really lucky to be coming along in the British industry when she was in the 1930s. And as a very young woman, she, she begins at the age of, of 26 years old. And she comes in to Hitchcock's team um, and is able to kind of learn the ropes from, from all angles and from the beginning, you know, beginning of the process to the end of the process. And so she, this is very different than the Hollywood system or the factory mode, you know, system. And so she, she's given access, right, to, um, to not just the writing, the area of writing, but also she's able to kind of be on, on set and see all aspects of production. And if something is needed, um, there aren't that many people to do whatever's necessary. So, you know, oh, just hand it off to to Joan if she's nearby, to Joan Harrison, right? If she's nearby. Um, she learned what it was to, to do scoring, to do the music, to do marketing. Um, I mean, I was just in the files for the making of Young and Innocent, right? Which is a 1937 film. And it's clear that there was a lot of thought given to the marketing and the, and the kind of pre-selling of that film. And a lot of the exploitation or the publicity around that film was um, was batted around, and I can only imagine, right, that she's in all of those meetings as well, because there there just weren't that many. It's not as though there was a huge publicity department. It was not departmentalized, you know, and compartmentalized. And she talks a lot about that in her own interviews as she reflects on the differences between the British and the American film industries. So that when um, in the late 1930s Hitchcock, you know, is asked or hired over into the United States. And David Oselznik um, hires him to, hires Hitchcock to come over and first, the first film is Rebecca. Joan Harrison is, um, is, is brought over kind of, right, Hitchcock brings her as part of the team. She's the only person that Hitchcock is working with besides his wife, Alma Revel, that he brings with him to the United States. And so she, when she comes to Hollywood, is exposed to a completely different mode of production. And that's basically what she recognizes as the major difference, is just how the the divisions are and how the mode of production is so different. So generally there, the writers are are kept with the writers and the editors are kept with the editors. Um, But given that she had been exposed to so many areas, she had kind of a leg up, you know, and she could take the producer's vision, in other words, the perspective of the producer, and see how everything worked, um, because she basically was already armed with all that knowledge. What would you say were it's sort of in these years that she's working with Hitchcock in film, what would you say is sort of like her crowning achievement, what she would refer to as the best film or the best experience, and what was a maybe a failure that they encountered together? Um, these are good, you know, good questions. So I would say, you know, she always reflected back on Rebecca, right, on Rebecca as being her favorite film and also the film in which she she kind of lost the most, right? She spent kind of the most, she cried the most, <laughs> you know, kind of um, just had the most turmoil, but also felt that she had invested the most time and that it was her, her kind of baby, um, in part because she did bring the property, right, Daphne du Maurier's novel, to him, um, and that happened in England. So then, when they they come to the United States to make the film, it becomes an eighteen month process from beginning to end, and it really was a journey, right? You know, of of filmmaking um, to the point where, and I talk about this in the book. By the time um, the editing and post production is going on, Hitchcock has already left the you know, the production and has moved on to his next film. And she's the one who's sitting in the, 
you know, kind of in the editing, um, uh, in the post-production suite with, with David O'Selznick kind of as a surrogate for Hitchcock. So from the, from the readerly phase, right, from choosing the book all the way to the post-production, Harrison was the one who was heavily involved in, in Rebecca. And I think you also see a lot of her own interests kind of, right, writ large across that, that film that you're going to see later in her own, in her own work. So I think that would be kind of the crowning achievement, although it's really hard to choose of with her well, film. Yeah. Can I dig a little deeper on Rebecca for a moment? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously it's, I, I think, one of Hitchcock and Harrison's greatest works together, um, certainly a highlight in the auteur's uh, body of work. But the ending is a pretty controversial adaptation of the novel. Uh, spoiler alert for people who haven't read Rebecca by now or seen the film, um, the novel has a much more uh, menacing portrayal of the of Maxim, the husband character. He's a cold-blooded killer. Uh, the film did not keep that same ending. Uh, the first Mrs. De Winter is, is still uh, deceased at the beginning of the film, but uh, the, you know, her fate is different. The husband is more or less sort of um, exonerated of any kind of uh, real premeditated murder. What did Joan Harrison think of that ending? And what did they do in sort of the wake of pressure from the uh, production code administration to, right. to you know, uh, keep things above board, morally speaking? Right, right. There was a lot of pressure from the production court administration. And, um, and I think that is where she learned a lot of lessons about what what it was going to be like to work in Hollywood. So I think a lot of those changes that you're talking about, where it was a much more romantic ending, you know, where we we needed to have the couple um, end in a a way that we could imagine them heading off into a, a better somewhat brighter future that there's not Um, going to be a third mrs de winter coming up in a few years yeah right exactly exactly and um and also that mrs um that mrs danvers really gets her due you know in terms of seeing her punished um and i don't think yeah i mean that was something that david oselznick really wanted to see Mm -hmm. also right it's just kind of have having mrs danvers go go up in flames i can't imagine that that joan harrison was pushing really hard for that for that kind of punishment um, but but yeah, I mean, the, there's this the way in which basically most particularly Maxim de Winter cannot be a murderer. You know, he has to be, as you say, exonerated and, and the, the murder of his first wife um, has to be accidental as opposed to as opposed to um, more intentional. And so Joan Harrison was not happy with all these changes. And that this is one reason why it was such a prolonged process mm-hmm. of, you know, constant rewrites and then going back to see if this particular version would satisfy the censors and also working through the producer, through Osel, David Oselznick, right? Through Selznick, trying to see, would it satisfy, satisfy Selznick? Would it satisfy the censors? And Selznick was really angry um, also, right? With the censors. So he's also trying to defend some of um, the writer's choices up to the censors. All of this was was really, really, really challenging and um, quite a lot, quite a lot of lessons learned. But I don't think, it, it, so and on the one hand, it's a favorite of hers. On the other hand, I certainly don't think that it was her intent, you know, intended, um, intended ending or her intended story. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Of course, yeah. Well, while we're on the subject of sort of morality clauses, I want to look a little bit at Joan Harrison's personal life and, you know, as a trained academic, how you reckoned with writing about sort of these more private and sometimes like just obscure, unknowable aspects of her biography. So I'm thinking of two things. First, the unsubstantiated rumor 
potentially just a sort of a sexist um, preconception that Joan Harrison got the job because she was Alfred Hitchcock's mistress. That's one piece. And then another one about um, sort of the speculation around her affair with Clark Gable, which was real, which was true, uh, but is surrounded by a lot of mystery because, you know, she was a private person. So how did you choose to address these more open-ended aspects of her biography, which are really interesting, but maybe not going to be found in a paper collection? Right, right. Even William Dozier. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And this is very good questions. And, you know, so one of the things I was constantly working against, right, constantly, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because the way, you know, the way that Harrison has been trivialized, her work and her life has been trivialized, is that she's been referred to um, as as Hitchcock's secretary, as his personal assistant, um, as the nanny of the family, you know, in various forums. And then there's the David Spado book um, that that really does play out this narrative of, of Joan Harrison is kind of the, the lost love, right? The one, the one woman that was essentially casting the shadow across Hitchcock's life. Um, And, and what it does is it just, it just basically dismisses the most important parts of their work together. And it just kind of, um, it does, it, it it basically creates um, the wrong narrative, I think, you know, right. It just, um, it was, it was, it was something that I was not consciously trying to write in this way. I was not trying to consciously write against Spado, but I was trying to basically um, correct, you know, a lot of the mythology around this idea that, that Harrison was an appendage Mm -hmm. to Hitchcock and also that he was only kind of taking her, you know, through um, his own career because he was attracted to her, right? He's kind of pulling her, you know, pulling her to, through these various productions because he wanted to have her around rather than the fact that he really actually needed her. Um, and it's one reason why I came up with the the pitch that, you know, j- people say Joan Harrison wouldn't have been Joan Harrison if it weren't for Hitchcock. And I flipped that to say Hitchcock wouldn't have been Hitchcock if it weren't for Joan Harrison, that she really helped make him, Absolutely. which is, you know, a way of correcting that sexualization of her. Um, so, you know, one of the one of the things that, that just to be really specific and to put a fine point on it is that as I was pitching the book to publishers, the um, the working title was Hitchcock's Phantom Lady, you know, and at a certain point, we all decided that that was not just not the right way of going about it because it suggested his ownership of her or his possession of her, which is the opposite of what I was trying to do in the book, you know, and so we took that that out and made sure that she was the star of the show. Right. <laughs> and that Hitchcock became kind of a, a second point to the, to the title. But then as far as Clark Gable goes, um, just, just briefly, I mean, I wanted to, you know, your, uh, first of all, I, you know, um, they were together on and off for a lot longer than most people, anybody who knows anything, you know, some people don't know, know who Joan Harrison was and some people don't really know that there was much of a of a of a relationship between the two of them but if people do they kind of give that that relationship like one year or two year of you know of a window and it actually went on for like six or seven years and it was quite a substantial and significant relationship so I wanted to give it some time and suggest that there was actually a lot of kind of emotional depth there you know, it wasn't just um, kind of a red carpet, you know, glitzy kind of kind of thing. But at the same time, when it came down to it, there is the only real narrative that is out there is this idea that he broke her heart when he ran off and, and suddenly got married to someone else. The suggestion being that she was waiting for him to propose to her and then he didn't. And when I was speaking to Norman Lloyd, our beloved Norman Lloyd, who was producing the TV series with her and knew her really well, um, and recently passed away at the age of 106, I think. Um, I know. Um, he was saying that, you know, it would be wrong to to suggest that she was really heartbroken over anything Clark Gable did, you know, and that she was much more detached than than we would think. Absolutely. Well, I think it's sort of, for me, that 
that turn. It sounds like when she was working with Hitchcock in the British studio, she was really coming into her own as a as a filmmaker, as an artist with her own vision. And she got to bring that to Hollywood where she came into her own sort of as a celebrity, as a public figure. Because she was dating Clark Gable, having really good parties that I really enjoyed reading about. Um, and that maybe those two things together were what allowed her to sort of move out on her own out of Hitchcock's proverbial silhouette um, right. and start the solo career that she had uh, at universe, starting at Universal in the Hollywood studio system. So can you tell us a little bit about that move in the 40s to working as sort of a her own, a certain, not her own boss, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, working on as a solo producer, it, it's really, I think, like, it's sort of the heart of the book in many ways, how she became this sort of autonomous creative force that was shaped by Hitchcock, but also that would come back to shape Hitchcock in the in the fifties with the television series. Yeah, it's it's a really exciting time, you know, for her. Basically, nineteen thirty, uh, sorry, nineteen forty three to nineteen forty four, when she she signs on with Universal and um, is making Phantom Lady. She, you know, she pitches the Cornell Woolrich novel Phantom Lady to Universal as kind of this feminist iteration or the fem feminist twist on on that novel. And so she, um, even though she's given only the title of associate producer, the credit, right, of associate producer in that, in that production, she's really, for all intents and purposes, doing the work of a producer. And so she also is, is hired there to elevate the, right, you know, to kind of take Universal to another level. And the films that they were doing as horror movies mm -hmm. um they they were trying to compete um and kind of show that they could do more artistic work in that in that vein and what she she did that with phantom lady she was able to show that with their director robert siadmak they were a great team and she was able to kind of prove herself as someone who could do a more elevated um more artistic and what we now understand to be film noir you know but kind of expressionistic um take on these, on the suspense or the horror, horror um, film, and so what? But the 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 thing about that is that she does Phantom Lady, and then the truth is that Universal doesn't extend her contract. She does kind of a one shot at Universal, and then she has to kind of bounce around a little bit, but um, but finds her footing and winds up doing a whole series of great films. You know, either at Universal or RKO, and she makes The Strange Affair of Uncle Harry and Nocturne and um, they won't believe me, and um, and uh, and ride the pink horse because she does. By the late 1940s, she has joined Robert Montgomery and his production company, and is essentially helping to she, as as the producer at his production company is really helping him come into his own. And I think the the main thing is that as she's hitting her stride, you know, she's working with great writers, great directors, and she's thinking through uh, ideas about what we understand now to be film noir, you know, and thinking through storytelling and um, trying to do something really different in terms of the films that are coming out at that time. So, um, yeah, go ahead. You coined this term uh, femme noir, uh, kind of like, like a play on film noir. Can you say a little bit about sort of um, what this new genre she is sort of furthering? I won't say like single-handedly pioneering, but she's like a key contributor to in this, in this uh, moment. And maybe just for those listening, what's your favorite of her solo career in this moment? If we're going to watch one Joan Harrison sort of inspire Joan Harrison at the helm movie which one which one's uh, which one's your favorite okay sure <laughs> yeah yeah and and yeah and so what she you know she, again right there are a whole lot of films within that cycle mm -hmm. of the gothic gothic femme noir with you know kind of the woman a woman especially someone who might be kind of trapped in a domestic sphere who's mm -hmm. investigating um the psychological space and kind of discovering her own oppression at the hands of you know a a husband or a, a male figure. So there, there are those films. One of the things that that Joan Harrison's own films are definitely doing is just um, these reversals or these twists and turns that are that are really su 
surprise, you know, they, they have surprise endings or they break conventions in ways that question um, conventions of like family, you know, family dynamics. They show really sub, kind of um, really sub, subverting notions about what a healthy family means, you know, and she did not, she, she, she would outwardly say that she didn't believe in marriage, the institution of marriage. Um, she would paint romance as being quite perverted and those, <laughs> you know, and she would, um, she would try to avoid ending with a happy, like a happy couple. Um, and obviously, I mean, a lot of noirs that we see, you're not going to end with a happy couple because you have, for example, a male figure who's destined, you know, he's like fated to have um, nothing go right in his life. But, um, but with her, it was more than that. It was basically you, you would have, even if you had a marriage proposal, it would, you know, with Phantom Lady, for example, right. The marriage proposal would happen with the, the, the proposing man off screen. So it would still be, you know, you know that we're going to have a marriage, but she would not let you see it happen with the couple together. So just, you know, little, little kind of um, subversions. That sounds but, a little bit mm-hmm. like almost a continuation. When I think of uh, the end of Suspicion, which she worked on with Hitchcock, that that sort of happy ending that still leaves some kind of uneasiness in the pit of your stomach, that somehow not every thread has been tied up so neatly in terms of all of the reasons uh, that sh- that the wife has thought her husband was trying to murder her the whole time. It all seems a little too tidy and at the same time not entirely convincing. Uh, so even when you get a happy ending, it seems like maybe that was something that Harrison gave to Hitchcock or that they formulated together the kind of um, what I've heard to refer uh, as the uneasy happy ending or the sort of the purposely the purposely uh, suspicious close that makes you feel as though the filmmaker cannot say for reasons of code or genre that maybe this husband really is murderous after all, or maybe this marriage won't be entirely happy. Uh, and then that kind of makes the viewer meet them in that in that cynical place or in that dark place, even if the film is not willing to go all the way in saying it. Um, and yeah. so Phantom Lady, is that a personal favorite or which one do you recommend to me? You know, I, uh, well, I would, I would, I would go with, um, it's really, again, you know, I could pick any one of them. Yeah. And, and make a case for them. But I would say if you're looking for, um, I would go with, they won't believe me they actually. Believe me. Great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and partly because, I mean, just, just to give you like one sentence, you know, as a reason, mm-hmm. you know, so you've got Robert Young. Right. And he's supposedly the main character. He's been called an homme fatale, you know, right. The, the sure. kind of home, home wrecking, destructive, self-destructive male character. But um, and he's on trial. So he's um, he's the premise by which we're, we're kind of getting the story through his flashbacks. But basically, as we move through that, you get these three female characters and they are so well drawn and the performances are really quite great. So. I think at first glance, it's easy to maybe if you're not really watching that movie, but you have it on in the background, you know, you say, oh, my gosh, well, you know, so three women, but they're they're almost caricatures. And and who cares about Robert Young? He's a despicable figure. But if you watch especially the latest version, which has just been released this year and it's um, it's got 15 added minutes, the texture and the nuance, you know, both the treatment of him and also with the the three, the three females, you know, three women in his life. Oh, yeah. What do you hear? Three women and a despicable man. You had me at three women, and then you had me <laughs> even more with despicable man. No, they won't believe me. That's I'm going to have to look for that next. Um, one, I just want to go into one more aspect of her time in the studios, the sort of um, makeover montage that I like to think of as punctuating the middle of your book. Um, Joan Harrison seems like she was always sort of a put-together stylish uh, lady, but she got her own kind of star makeover when she entered into a solo producing career. They kind of made her into a real life Grace Kelly, maybe not the real Grace Kelly, but a Grace Kelly character from one of uh, Hitchcock's films. What did like, tell us about that sort of studio persona management when she came under, even though it seems like she was working primarily freelance, she still 
the studio stepped in to kind of make her into a professional that they could sell to people like Hedda Hopper and the and the fan magazines. They did, yeah. So when she signs on for Phantom Lady, it's clear that that she does. She gets a makeover and she is, I mean, she is sold across the country, right? In trade magazines and um, these publicity, basically these uh, still photos, right? And these publicity shoots that are done of her as she, she, uh, her hair is, right, is dyed much more blonde. She becomes kind of a peroxide blonde. She loses a great deal of weight. Um, I was actually told kind of off, you know, right? Um, I don't put this in the book, but that she was doing a lot of enema kind of, um, yeah. yeah, she was doing a lot of stuff to her body to lose a lot of weight, um, that really wrecked her later. And, um, and she, yeah, but, um, but she, I mean, she was always actually very petite, right? I mean, it's, she didn't really need to lose. Nobody needs to lose, <laughs> right? Nobody needs to lose weight, but she was it was never as though she needed to go through a makeover, um, but the studio clearly saw an opportunity to create a star just as as they could do with Joan Fontaine and they could sell her as a property. But I, I also try very hard in the in the book to suggest because I, I see ways in which she helped write, you know, her um, the copy. Right. I believe that she had some agency in the way in which I mean, the mistress of suspense. Right. The way in which she was trying to, to put her own, kind of put her, write herself in the image of Hitchcock. Um, there, there's no doubt in my mind that she was participating, at least to a certain degree, in the construction of, of her image. Um, and, and it's interesting to see some of the, there's certain uh, photos of her in England when she's working behind the scenes. There aren't that many, but there are a couple. And she looks so different. Even the ones when she's on the set of Foreign Correspondent, there's such a contrast between the way that she, you know, she just kind of presents herself, the way that, you know, her as an, or the way that she is um, versus the way that she, the way that she has become just a different Joan Harrison by the time she's working for Universal. And she doesn't, and from then on, right, that is Joan Harrison. In the, even in the 1970s, <laughs> she's still she's still the the person of of the 1940s. So she's bought into that image. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like she's having a glamorous, if taxing, time in the studios. Um, what motivated her to leave solo film production in the mid 1950s to work on? television's Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which I believe premiered in 1955. Mm -hmm. It did. Yes. Um, So, you know, there's this period of time, which is really, uh, really difficult, right? Really difficult for her when she, it's, it becomes clear that she may become subject to the blacklist Mm -hmm. and the late 1940s, kind of right around 1949, she gets word that, I mean, I, I, this is, you know, this is nothing that I can show you in documentation, but it just seems I, my reading of um, of what's going on is that that she she the reason that she leaves Los Angeles and goes to Europe is because she's really fearful for what may happen to her career. And one of the reasons that I say that is because she signs a uh, she signs a contract with Columbia, um, and she's due to make films with Harry Cohn, and within two months. She's gone, you know, um, and there are reports of her talking, you know, uh, with Evelyn Keys and and, you know, and, and kind of like in low whispers. Right. And all of a sudden and, and it's suggested that they're either complaining about Harry Cohen or, or like something's going on. And all of a sudden she's just gone. And so the suggestion is that she was um, being told either by him because he would often signal to his own his own contract stars or writers that they were about to be about to be um, about to be put that that they were, yeah, that they were about to be um, called before to testify. So he would actually let them know. Well, this is a really, that's a really uh, compelling historiographic problem, history of history, which is whenever the blacklist involved is involved, it, it feels like there's sort of this like lost track of audio, like a radio silence, because so often that was 
just the kind of thing you wouldn't necessarily want to put on in writing that, you know, what meetings you've been to, why someone might suspect you. Um, so that does seem like uh, this, the silence is, is somewhat damning, um, not necessarily about her, but about like what's motivating her and what fears she might be having uh, and why people might be turning her away. Um, and it does seem like television became something of a refuge for a lot of blacklisted. So I'm not so so experienced about producers, but certainly blacklisted writers sometimes worked for television under different names or on one-offs. It was harder in film. So that does, uh, Harrison, as I recall, did hire blacklisted writers where she could and tried to help them out. But what was, um, so in the mid fifties, she came back into the Hitch, into Hitchcock's folds, possibly motivated by sort of a, a threatened career due to political for political reasons back um in Hitchcock's employ they were brought together by super agent growing agencies Lou Wasserman um what was her job on Alfred Hitchcock presents what was her role on the show yeah so she was the producer of the show and she was there to make sure that you know again she was running everything so Alfred Hitchcock was um you know, it was almost as though he, he was there for branding purposes. I mean, it's not that he didn't do anything on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, you know, but he was um, he was there. He directed maybe 20 episodes out of the 300-ish um, episodes, and he had very little to do with the running of the day-to-day show. So that was Joan Harrison's role, is she did everything from choosing the writers, choosing the material, choosing locations doing all the legal rights, um, and then obviously editing and, and getting getting each episode to to um, to the air to airing the broadcast. And and I mean her main function, right, the reason that they knew that they needed Joan Harrison, when I say they, I mean Lou Wasserman and Hitchcock, was that she was the the only person who could make sure that every show was had like the Alfred Hitchcock signature, right? That kind of she could certify that this was a Hitchcock show. Well, I mean, just based on the sort of the, the years that this show ran, it would be hard to argue that Hitchcock was playing a, an, a sort of a day-to-day important role, considering these are the years that he made Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho. Mm-hmm. He was busy. Um, and so it sounds like, you know, a lot of the responsibilities of the show were delegated to Harrison. And knowing the work that Harrison had done with him and then on her own in the 40s, how did that come through in the shows when you see Alfred Hitchcock presents do you see a lot of Harrison there yes yeah she you know she was most interested in basically kind of the underbelly right the the very um kind of the very um the kind of the violence right and the sexual and the violent impulses that are always kind of streaming there underneath in terms of the domestic sphere and the family um, and not that every single episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents has to do with families and couples, um, but a lot because because that show was being broadcast into the home, it was often kind of speaking to audiences about about the about domestic spaces, you know, and that's what she was most interested in. So there was almost this kind of one to one. The conversation that she was having with families about families. I think it was really interesting in that sense. And also, you know, her, we, we often think about Hitchcock as being um, so interested in the fact that your, your own neighbor, right, the very ordinary looking and ordinary seeming person could be the most violent criminal. And so, you know, she was, she, even I think before they met, she was also very interested in that idea that you shouldn't assume, you know, that violent, hardened criminals look a certain way, you know, but that they really are right next door. And that's the theme of this, of the series. It seems like one of the sort of best known episodes uh, that feels like you might be referencing uh, was written by, adapted from his own story, Raul Dahl's Lamb to the Slaughter, starring yes. Barbara Bel Geddes. Can you give us a little bit of insight into sort of the, the, the Harrison imprint <laughs> on that, on that episode? Yeah, that's a, a perfect example, right? Of um, basically a wife who is who has murdered her husband, and the the police 
um, come in to investigate. And so we've got a leg of lamb. Well, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a leg of lamb, but, um, but she, uh, she serves, uh, the weapon she, or the, yeah, yeah. She, because it's a frozen leg of mm-hmm. lamb that she yes. ate, right. That she battered her husband with. And so she basically serves, um, yes, the, the, she cooks it up, right. She cooks up the, the, the leg of lamb and has the, has the, um, police or the investigators sit around her table. And it's just the idea of bringing them in and, and treating them very civilly while she feeds them that very leg of lamb. And, and I, and the, and the husband's body is, is, I think, I, well, we know that I mean, she, yeah. she bludgeons him with the, <laughs> the yeah, lamb yeah. shoulder and then the police eat the evidence. Right. Um, but that I remember is, that's one of the episodes that Hitchcock directed, but it feels mm-hmm. like a pretty um, representative of the kinds of themes that we're talking about. We have murderous husbands, and that one is a pretty memorable murderous wife mm-hmm. uh, played by the actress who plays Mitch in Vertigo. So it definitely, you talk about that kind of continuity across film and television. We have Hitchcock sort of portraying her as a as a beleaguered minor character, second banana um, in vertigo and then she sort of becomes this really delightfully unhinged main character in the television series so harrison is able to you know in certain ways render something even more dark and grotesque on television which is kind of surprising she's like a murderous she's a murderous donna reed she's um (laughs) um so she works on that show. The show becomes an hour-long show, but then she leaves at some point. She decides to move on, uh, and we're sort of entering into the twilight of Joan Harrison's career at this point. And her ending is like not very dramatic. It doesn't. Um, it's it's not. It ends sort of with a a, a whimper and not a bang. Um, can you tell us a little bit about sort of the final years in, in Hollywood? Um, after her marriage to suspense writer or sort of novelist Eric Ambler, because I think it tells us a lot about sort of not just Joan Harrison, but how women do get left out of this history and why. Yes, yes, and and um and what happens is so the series ends in 1965, and with that she actually tries to get another series off the ground with her husband, with Eric Ambler. They write um. A series and they pitch it, but it goes nowhere. And this is what starts to happen is she, she would love to continue to work and she has other ideas, but she's now, um, you know, she, she has always lied about her age. So people don't really know how old she is, but she's in her fifties going to into her sixties. And so she's perceived as being kind of outdated, you know, in the, as we move from old Hollywood to new Hollywood, right. Um, classic Hollywood into the new Hollywood, a lot of, of people in her generation are perceived as being kind of out outmoded, but for women, it's it's doubly worse. And um, so she, for you know, for a couple of things are happening. One is when she marries Eric Ambler, who is this really you know quite um, quite renowned spy novelist. She also creates a lot of tension with Hitchcock because Hitchcock sees her as betraying him. You know, and so she kind of makes that choice where she's now isolating herself in a certain sense. And um, and so while she does actually she makes a series with Aaron Spelling for ABC in the early 1970s. You know, there are a couple of like fits and starts. She really is unfortunately not very productive. And in terms of being um, kind of forgotten. Right. And being written out of history. As she uh, basically is living out her life in, in London with Eric Ambler and winds up becoming more and more ill, she's um, increasingly um, sick, what's happening is Alfred Hitchcock is enjoying more and more success. Um, there's lots of retrospectives, biographies are being written, you know, more and more books are coming out celebrating his incredible legacy. Meanwhile, he's helping to write his own history. And so as he um, tells his story, he's really not giving much credit to really anybody. Um, But the last person that he's thinking to credit is Joan Harrison. You know, he's, he's definitely not pointing out her, 
her contributions. And no one is looking for her. You know, even I would say women who in the 1970s, second wave feminists, you know, those women who are looking for role models are, are, they tend to look for directors, you know, it's kind of an auteurist moment. And so they're not looking for women producers as role models. And she definitely is not a woman to stand out and say, Hey, you know, I, here I am, please tell my story. Um, but it's, it's the fault, I think of traditional history, right? Traditional historians, um, uh, it was. Uh, it's definitely a kind of a masculinist uh, view of film history. Well, that's a, that's a really sad. That's a really sad ending for Joan Harrison, who had such a colorful career. But it's it's so great that you've managed to sort of recuperate um, her as as an artist, and also just sort of as an important businesswoman, sort of possibility for women to look at in that moment when they're reading about her in a gossip column. That she really did sort of, she did really um, loom large in her moment, even if she was sort of forgotten quickly Mm -hmm. afterwards and now finally is getting her due. We only have time for one more question. Um, And I want it to be about sort of the way that this book has allowed you to pivot your readership as a a professor, as an academic, to to a more general audience. Your book won the Edgar Award, which is given by the Mystery Writers of America. So congratulations to that. That's a that's a great achievement. Um, and it's a testament to how your book really is achieving what so many scholarly writers want to do, which is find that crossover audience. So knowing that your book did want to appeal to sort of readers beyond um, the subfield or an academic specialty, how did that change the way you wrote it um, and the way you sort of sought out a publisher, the way you promoted it? Just in general, how did that change the way that you did things from say your first book. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I I knew that I wanted to find as wide of a readership as possible because I wanted to bring Joan Harrison's, you know, life and career to as many people as possible. So it was a strategic choice and um and and for that reason, I mean, one of the things that I had to do is um, make much more grander claims, right? That I probably would have made, you know, as an academic and as a scholar, we are trained to qualify everything, you know, and to kind of hold back on the kinds of statements that we make and the, you know, we, 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 for very good reason, we are, um, always kind of trying to make sure that we stay within, (laughs) within, um, certain statements and certain realms. And, to, to essentially to sell this idea, right? To sell the project. So at every single stage, I really needed to make, um, make a big, right? You have to kind of do, do things bigger and be ready to stand by the statements. I, I was never going to make a statement I couldn't stand by, right? Of course, yeah. Um, but I really did have to basically re, uh, re-engineer the way that I thought because otherwise it's, it's, you kind of have to advertise in a different way. And so what that meant, and and I guess is also that I was constantly checking my research and like trying to find three, four, five, six sources, because if I was going to say something like, for example, um, Joan Harrison was a creative producer. She was functioning as a creative producer by 1938, you know, um, I wanted to make sure I could really stand by that because I thought that was a huge, huge discovery, like a research discovery. Now that's not going to sell, right? That's not going to sell a book. That was actually more of a historical claim that no one else could, had like been making in terms of that collaboration, that professional collaboration. She had been dismissed, you know, so much, um, so often in the Hitchcock scholarship that I wanted to be able to put that book out um, and have it make like matter in both realms, you know? So I wanted to be able to say something like she was a, um, an original Hitchcock blonde. That would be a kind of the, a selling point in the more commercial market. Um, and I found enough evidence for that. Um, but then the, the idea that she was functioning at such a high level to do that, I was checking, you know, in Tom Schatz's research, I would check his books and then I would go back and check his original sources and go into the archives. 
and what I wound up doing by the by the time I was in my final drafts is I was asking those Hitchcock scholars that I respected the most to read, you know, to read my my manuscripts um, because I didn't want the book to come out and at that stage have those folks say, oh, well, Christina, you really shouldn't. <laughs> you really blew it there. Um, and and that's that's what I was balancing, right? I was balancing kind of the scholarly heft of it with the other kind of commercial, um, the, <laughs> the jingles. <laughs> Definitely. Well, you, you nailed it, Christina. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. My very first guest on New Books Network. You're, thank you. you're very generous with your time. Uh, and thank you for sharing so much about your book. Uh, highly recommended to everyone listening. Uh, thanks again. And see you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you.